<sighs> Molly. What are we sighing about today? Sigh for the trees. <laughs> Again? There are too many environmental issues for just one environmental episode. Hello and welcome to PolySci, the podcast where episode by episode we take a collective sigh and break down the political frustrations of the world, bridging political science jargon to the issues and hopefully solutions that matter to you. Each episode we talk with a political scientist to get their story, hear what they're researching, why you should care about it, and maybe what you can do. We're your hosts, Molly and Owen. Molly, what do we got going on? This week we are talking with Adriana Molina Garzon, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her work looks at public policy and applications of environmentalism. So what questions are we going to be asking Audrey and what things are we going to be talking about? So she looks at how we can be sustainable with our use of natural resources. So do people better manage those resources when they're left to their own decisions? Or does government play a major role in appropriate management? Basically, do people take care of what they have when they're just left to their own devices? Or does oversight help them better take care of those resources? So political science is made up of multiple subfields. And last week, we talked about the environment from the perspective of environmental political theory, talking about the ideologies and attitudes and systems that got us to our environmental kerfuffle where we are today. This week, we are looking at how to design appropriate policy that balances all of these contributing voices. So if you're wanting to hear about the way environmentalism starts to look like policy, the trade-offs that come with environmental policy in the real world, looking at policies such as Red Plus, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. About how international organizations act on policy and how we can have environmental progress while still considering the lives of the people that depend on those resources. Then tune into our discussion with Adriana Molina Garzon. This is Polly Sai. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Adriana, but I like to go by Adri because Adriana is a little too formal for me. <laughs> and I, I am a PhD candidate now in the Department of Political Science, CU. And I am Colombian, and I've, I've actually don't identify myself as a political scientist, but more as an economist and just social scientist in general. So even now, you don't identify yourself as a political scientist, despite being in a political <laughs> science PhD program? I know, that's funny. <laughs> you know, that actually, I don't usually say I am doing a PhD in political science. I say I'm doing it in public policy. So I'm more like super public policy oriented and less of a political scientist. <laughs> that's interesting. So what is the work that you do? Why do you call public policy? What are the questions you study and the work that interests you? Okay, so um, yeah, I guess the reason why I identify more as a public policy and uh, general social, social scientist is because I think uh, my area of interest is much more applied and um, more also kind of like focused on evaluation, which is a more econ side of things, kind of like the study of policies, specifically policies for environmental policy and environmental governance. 
So looking at the issues of how do we make decisions for that, that affect both natural resources and people who depend on those natural resources and uh, what kind of policies are like available in the tool of in the policy kit uh, for different countries, especially in the case of Latin America, which is kind of my area, geographical area of interest. And then looking at the evaluation of those policies. So looking at what, what really works and what doesn't really work as well or hasn't really worked as well historically. I should also say that when I think about governance, I'm not only thinking about the role of the government, but from the perspective of different agents and the perspective of the communities too and their capacity to self-organize and govern themselves. And that is important to me because it goes into like what I'm doing, looking at older agents and how they make decisions and how they affect what is happening with the environment and with the people who live there. So you might have to help walk me through this because you're, you're identifying kind of as an economist, but really you study public policy and the application seems to be environmental, specifically in a Latin American context. What kind of came first? So where did the interest start? If you could walk me back, how we get to Audrey in 2021 today. <laughs> so I was actually, you know, my undergrad was both in economics and um, management school, like business management. But that's kind of like from the perspective of the government, so governmental management. So that those two, econ and management, go very close together in that regard. And then I did a master's in econ. And when I was doing that, I started working with uh, Dr. Juan Camilo Cárdenas and Dr. Uh, María Alejandra Vélez, and both of them are in Colombia, and both of them are kind of like very well known in the field of environmental economists now, not only for the case of Latin America, but kind of like more in general. And the reason why they kind of like have become more popular is because both were part of the school of Elinor Ostrom, and that's kind of like where all of those ideas come from focused on the communities and how they are affected by environmental issues, but also about other type of global issues. And by, by Ostrom, you're referring to collective action issues then. So how we overcome environmental collective action problems. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and also collective action issues, but also looking at the kind of like the balance between governments uh, making decisions in markets, kind of like influencing how people make decisions, but also individuals and kind of like empowering communities themselves, not only as kind of like the receivers of those policies, but also as the, as the developers and makers and implementers of those ideas and kind of like their capacity to self-organize and make decisions and restrict others from entering their space and actually kind of like fight for their rights and all of those, those things. So. Juan Camilo Cárdenas, uh, Dr. Juan Camilo Cárdenas, he is kind of like, he was one of the main you know, scholars uh, trying to look not only at kind of like, yeah, understanding this from a theoretical perspective, but also taking all of these ideas to the field, kind of like taking the laboratory to the field and going directly to, to the communities in rural areas and in forested areas and talking to people to try to understand better how is it that they're make, they're, they make decisions and how is it that these theories that we all we have from the economic perspective are actually applied in real life, you know? So is it true that we end up having the, like the tragedy, tragedy of the commons, for example? Is it really true in, in if we test these hypotheses and these ideas with them, do we really find out that people at the local level are 
exactly like as we think from like an economic theoretical perspective. So that was kind of like a very important development just to test that with people, with real people who actually face those dilemmas in their daily lives. And I started working for him and studying under him. So he was my advisor too. And I guess I went from there. And at the same time, I was doing some consultancies. And after that, I started working with this think tank that does a lot of consultancies for governments. And this is in the case of Colombia uh, when I was growing up. And I realized that what I cared about was kind of like the environmental issues. So um, yeah, through my work and those experiences, I was able to evaluate policies for deforestation and policies for coastal management and things like that. And yeah, I got <laughs> in love in that, to that. I was you know, like, I made my decision that I was going to stay in the environmental issues for the rest of my life. That's fantastic. So I might rewind this a little bit of a second, but I'm curious with um, uh, Dr. Cardenas, his research, mm-hmm. did, did he actually find that the tragedy of the commons was real when he went out into the field? Could you first explain what the tragedy of the commons is and whether he actually found this to be true? It's kind of like the distance between individualism and cooperation. So it's the idea that for us to avoid the tragedy of the commons, which I'm going to explain in a minute, we all need to kind of give up some of our own selfishness and our own individual needs just to favor the group. The kind of like the fundament for this is to think that the tragedy of the commons will always happen when we share kind of like a resource or a space that has natural resources and everyone is going to try to kind of like consume as much as they can because they're going to be thinking about themselves first. And if everyone is thinking about that and, you know, everybody's thinking, well, if I kind of like cut one more tree, we're not going to end up with no forest because it's just one more tree, but everybody's thinking about the same issue, the same thing, and we end up kind of consuming all the trees available because nobody is still thinking about the group as a whole. So nobody is really internalizing the cost of, of the decisions that we make as a, as a group. But everybody's just thinking about themselves. Um, so yeah, based on that perspective, and also like when we think about kind of like the econ homo, homo sapiens, um, from a theoretical perspective, we think that, you know, the way the market works is everybody makes those individual decisions and the market assumes that, or like the theoretical market idea is that uh, everybody doing those decisions, we're going to end up in an equilibrium that is the best for everyone. That's kind of like the main theoretical idea. And then when when you look at the environment, you realize that the yeah, doesn't really work because you have all this kind of like, yeah, the tragedy of the commons and you have other market failures that make it so when people are act selfishly, we are not going to end up in a good equilibrium. We're actually going to end up in a situation where we're all kind of like in a bad place. So when your professor, when your advisor at the time went out into the field, did he see that humans actually behave this way after all? Well, he found out that people actually don't behave as much, as badly as we assume. Oh, really? Humans are good, right? Humans are good. (laughs) Humans are not as bad as we thought, yes. So there is a lot of other type of things that come into place. Like there is a lot of emotions. So a lot of us actually are pro-social and a lot of us actually care about the environment more than we care about people or, you know, like there is a high diversity of emotions in for humans that make it so we behave in different ways. Some people actually don't behave in such a selfish way. And, you know, when you put people in a setting uh, in which they can make individual decisions, individual and anonymous decisions, no no one is like 
getting this information of how many trees are you cutting, for example, or how many fish are you taking from a pond. And when people make those decisions in multiple rounds in the context of like a little game we're going to play, we're all going to be using this shared resource. He found out that some, sometimes people would leave some trees standing. And then if you talk to people, you ask them, why are you leaving this tree standing? You know, you are affecting your own benefit. Because that's like the idea is that you will play this little game in this setting and then you can actually pay people money for the decisions they make. So cutting trees... Uh, or leaving trees standing means that you are potentially losing money. You know, it was very interesting to see why are people not cutting all the trees they can. So when you go and talk to them and people will tell you things like, well, I'm leaving this tree standing because, you know, uh, the birds may also need the tree yeah, for, nice. you know, for their habitat and because trees are also significant for water, uh, groundwater to be good and available for all of us. And it's interesting because it's like, this is all a fictional game, but people are still thinking about all of those things. So I guess the bottom line of that was just to realize that reality is so much more complex. We are not all just simple individualistic beings. We are also very complex creatures that care about so many other things. I'm curious of using you, Audrey, as a case study for this almost, because if we look at the quote unquote rational perspective, you have spent many years studying environmental policy for presumably not much material gain, presumably not much like, oh my God, I'm living the high life. I got so much free time. But you're using a lot of time and a lot of your, your life to studying and finding solutions for the environment through environmental policy. So do you think that you kind of goes to show that maybe everybody in the world is not like you, but that there are a lot of people out there who don't follow the cut and dry plus negative view of the world? Like maybe there's actually more factors. Like what has you actually doing this despite all the costs involved in your career? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, a, there's a lot of people who really care about the environment and a lot of people who really care about social issues. And I think we're all just chasing this, giant goal of making this planet sustainable the, i think that the problem is when you when you go into this with this kind of like goal and these dreams and then you realize everything is so complex like reality is so complex so you stay there just because every time you try to find a solution you find a problem too so it's kind of like an obsession <laughs> so i'm going to start asking the really tough questions that we might not have answers to but <laughs> but i want to ask anyway because uh, as we were discussing earlier the previous episode uh, we talked about the environment as well we talked uh from environmental political theory lens though and i'm curious what you think the solutions are to environmental frankly environmental doom and gloom in the world today <laughs> in the 21st century what do you think the solutions are? And I'm assuming you lean towards the idea that there's something about policy that actually is kind of the mixing solution, that, that the crux perhaps is in policy that can get us all to maybe think and feel like you or maybe behave like you, at least someone who doesn't follow the quote unquote rational, I just want to accumulate wealth, but actually starts developing and acting upon values that are sensitive to the environment and environmental devastation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, most of the times um, the solution doesn't come from one single thing, but like a combination of things. Like you have to admit and just accept and immerse yourself in the reality that everything is like complex, has, uh, you know, multiple actors, multiple interests. So 
maybe the best strategy is just to do a little bit of each thing. Um, so yeah, like I study policy tools um, and also kind of like policy actors. So from my perspective, I had to come to the understanding that the government itself is not the only responsible and is not going to be the only solution. So you have other type of actors like the communities themselves and you have NGOs and you have private companies and although everyone is just trying to do their thing and if you combine kind of like efforts that everybody puts into this uh, giant problem, then we might be able to move forward um, and also with policy. So if we think about the government perspective, I don't think there is like a holy grail of like the one single policy that's going to solve everything. I don't think that's possible. I think the only thing we can do is just to try to uh, complement different policies. So now what is happening in the field is that people are doing uh, evaluations of multiple policies happening at the same time. And it's kind of like also what I'm trying to do right now. And uh, that's really hard because for so many years we have developed tools and mechanisms just to do kind of like the very simple study of like, you know, you do one implementation of one specific treatment or one specific policy, and then you always want to have a very clean cut of, you know, the group that didn't get the treatment and the group that did, preferably before and after, you know, some data, and then you can be in the lab where nothing else is affecting what you're studying, and then you have very clean results. But the reality of that is that that's very pretty, but it's not how the world really works. In the real world, you have, as I said, like so many people doing so many other things. So the government might kind of like implement a policy, but the communities are doing other things too and are doing other type of efforts. And then you also have NGOs now. And they were also designing and implementing programs. So there's like this multitude of efforts and multitude of policies and multitude of complex realities that we have to try to learn to evaluate and have to try to learn to study. And I don't think we're there yet in academia or you know in general so i want to get into kind of the publications and the working papers that you're um, in the process of carrying out do you feel that there is a strict divide of we should be focusing our efforts rallying the state rallying the government or we should be trying to go through non-governmental organizations ngos and going through them is there a more optimal path that we should be going it seems like this is all interconnected but I'm curious as to not how to pass the holy grail policies, because it seems like you're not a believer in that, but how we pass good policies and what those might look like and how we start pushing them through. I guess I can answer that question from the perspective of what I am studying in my in my dissertation. Um, kind of like the easiest example that I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I'm looking at, the specific issue of deforestation and the specific issue of Red Plus programs, which I don't know if you've heard, but it's this idea of kind of like an international global mechanism that was designed to reduce deforestation and forest degradation. You know, we started with the idea that around the world, developed nations were going to kind of like buy, like there was going to be a carbon market so developed nations that had the money were going to send money to developing nations that still had standing forests um, to kind of like help them conserve those forests and receive the money. So there was going to be kind of like um, a carbon market flow in which developed nations were going to buy carbon. Um, like carbon offsets, carbon yeah, credits. Yeah, carbon offsets, carbon credits. Yes, thank you. And um, 
developing nations were going to be selling those and use that money to give to the communities and to, to invest in the protection of the forests and the yeah. resources and all of that, right? So that didn't really work for oh, no. <laughs> a multiple, multiple reasons. Uh, it hasn't really worked so far. We haven't really seen consistent results on any front and the money is really not there anymore. But what has happened is that a lot of well, it has happened um, from the perspective of kind of like some um, bilateral connections or some specific NGOs or some specific uh, developing uh, banks or developing programs have invested their money to support those programs in the global south. So it has we have had some experiences with that, but it hasn't worked as a like global market. It doesn't exist as a global market. What has happened is that governments have tried to implement different programs, but in that implementation of those programs, you get to see that governments actually collaborate with NGOs, for example, to develop not only to design, but also to implement uh, specific programs with some specific communities at the local level. And in that process, you have to kind of like take into account all the stakeholders that are involved. And I don't think you can actually be successful at that if you don't kind of like co communicate with the communities at the local level because you, you have to consider all the complex reality of kind of like how is the land di di divided? Uh, do people have land rights and land titles, you know, to actually make decisions over the land that they, they live in and the forest that they depend on? What is com the composition of the community? You know, like, are there any gender issues involved in this process of trying to implement a program in which you are going to ask people to protect the forest and take the money that somebody else is giving them and try to make that sustainable for them, kind of like survive with this money that's coming in? What I'm going with is that the implementation of all of these efforts is, is not just kind of like a clean cut. Um, type no. of implementation or type of design you have to consider and that's what is happening in reality you have to consider the collaboration between NGOs and governments and in some cases that is a contractual collaboration in other cases that's kind of like a more informal collaboration just because NGOs have kind of like a, a stronger presence in some communities or are you know trust more uh, NGOs that work with them on a daily basis and stuff like that and also you have to consider that these programs also are not necessarily kind of like clean cut programs in which you tell them, okay, you're going to protect this forest. Don't touch the forest. I'm going to give you money and you're going to survive with the money I'm giving you. It doesn't really work like that also in reality. It works more like, well, you know, you can cut a little bit and we can negotiate exactly what is it that you're protecting. Maybe you're not protecting the actual tree, but you're protecting more like the ecosystemic uh, services that you're receiving and the reality is so complex that you have to understand that there's so many efforts happening. You have to give training to people on top of giving them money. You also have to kind of like talk to the community members, uh, negotiate with the leaders of a community. So it's kind of like difficult to, to say that what was exactly what made the program successful, if it is successful, and what, yeah, even what are we considering a success in this process? And if you look at at this whole complexity in real life, then you understand that it's really hard to think about environmentalism as, as just one thing. Like it's environmentalism in real life is not just protecting natural resources. It's more trying to kind of like be realistic and find a good balance of what is it that we're gonna do and like what are the goals that we're gonna consider in whatever effort we make. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to try and draw out some patterns here. And you correct me when I'm misspeaking then from the findings that you've gathered. So the one thing that stands out to me, though, is that localism seems to really matter. So the way you were talking about how NGOs either were acting as an intermediary or acting as a representative for a lot of local communities as ways of communicating between everyday regular people and the government as to like, how are we going to implement these policies? What are the nuances involved in the land of ownership of maybe uh, ethnic conflict of maybe um, resource distribution? The NGOs really matter there, but really they matter so much as because there's localism involved that the local actors, everyday people really matter in that front. Seems correct, especially if the way you're talking about how this global climate market never took off because it seems like it was missing that local component. Does this actually seem right or accurate to you? Yes, uh, I think I think that sounds right. Um, but you also have to consider that NGOs are also, like they have different personalities, I feel. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you may have some NGOs that are more kind of like hardcore conservationist and yeah. others that are more like, going towards more political issues or activism or things like that. And there are NGOs that because of their personality and their political affiliation, they may also have issues with communities. So you also see that some communities are really against the idea of environmentalism and the idea of NGOs being present in the connection with governments. Because some NGOs that have received a lot of money, especially coming from kind of like more like bigger international NGOs, they are very set on, no, what we need to do is just to protect natural resources. So make sure the forest is standing, make sure you know we protect biodiversity, and that leaves people who depend on these resources, that leaves them out of the equation. And like when you leave people out, I, I think there is kind of like some degree of in, <laughs> injustice from that process, because this is people who have lived in these areas for many, many years, and it's people who have kind of like a... Like a, I don't know, like a right to the land and a right to the exploitation of these resources. It's a difficult process to try to negotiate those things, right? So that's that's why you see some people react very negatively towards these environmental processes. I guess from what you were saying, it is true that there is like a very like a localism that is important in this process. You need to understand kind of like what are the local dynamics, the local needs, what are the what is the political affiliation of the local organizations. What is the like political and eco- economic dynamic of the country where you are trying to implement these processes and these programs? And a big part of why this Red Plus international market never was really able to develop was because there were some assumptions in what we needed to do that couldn't be kind of like actually applied in real life. So, for example, people had the title over the land, which in the case of the Global South, it's a reality that doesn't exist yet. So like a lot of countries, especially in the case of Latin America, a lot of countries are still in the process of defining and clarifying the land rights and the land titles. And that has been a big part of the conflict for so many years, you know, over the past century. Part The big reason why you have war in so many countries still in Latin America is a lot related with land titles and land rights. So, you know, if you come from a developed nation that like are making the assumption that people need to have land titles and then you are hit with the reality of like all of these complex dynamics that are happening at the local level, then like, of course, you're not going to be able to, to make this work. 
well, one of the assumptions of this type of dynamics, this type of program was that you had to make sure that you were giving money to people who were otherwise going to cut forest. You know, so that was the other option. You, you could not just give money to someone who was invested in protecting the resource. You know, so, so if you, Owen, are a very environmental, <laughs> environmentalist farmer, you should not be getting the resources, you know, from this perspective of the program design of what, what was conceived initially as red plus. You should, because you are already protecting the forest, you are yeah. already going to you know, leave the forest standing because you care about the, you know, the resources and you care about the birds and you care about the beautiful trees. Mm-hmm. So I should really be giving the money to someone who is willing and eager to cut it mm-hmm. uh, because the objective is to try to stop those, those processes of deforestation. But of course, that creates a dynamic of like, oh, this is unfair. <laughs> you know, it creates conflict at the, at the local level again, because, you know, if, I, if I'm your neighbor and oh no, okay, if I am the one who was going to cut, I have, a, you know, I'm interested in having cows and I'm interested in, in becoming rich and you see me getting the money, you're going to get super mad at me. You're going to be like, well, this is unfair. Why are you giving the money to Adriana? Adriana was already behaving so badly. She has been cutting all the trees we have around. I've been in a fight with Adriana for 10 years now because she keeps cutting everything. But and now that you are implementing this program, she's getting the money. So it makes yeah. no sense for people at, at the local level. And all of these issues were things that initially didn't consider when we were thinking about this. And of course, you have the issue of poverty and all the other social issues that we care about. You know, So if you also try to solve issues of poverty and try to put all of this pressure on these type of environmental programs, it's going to be really hard to make advancements and to achieve the goals that you set. So I'm going to set up a false dichotomy here for you. What comes to my mind is how an environmentally friendly government should be designed. And so I'm curious if we should see a government that is further centralized, so a stronger unified government or a more decentralized government, one that is much more emphasis on like local government, local sovereignty. If one of these seem to be more favorably designed for environmental policy and environmental protection, And one reason I asked that is because a while ago, or at least from my perspective, there was some compelling evidence showing of how, at least in the United States as a case study, a lot of environmental harm is done because people could do whatever the heck they want. (laughs) Basically, like, oh, it's my rights, my Mm -hmm. freedom, I could do this. So what seems wanting in that area is a really strong top-down centralized government saying, oh, we're going to enact these laws regulate these things to make sure that people just don't have the ability and the freedom to devastate the environment. But I think it's a more nuanced story the way you're depicting it as well. But I'm curious if there seems to be a design that's more one or the other, because I can't remember quite what city it was. I think it was Louisville, how there's kind of a top-down scenario where they wanted to introduce composting, a very environmentally good thing. But they eventually ended up putting the compost facility in the poorest neighborhood. So not only was this an instance of top-down environmental like coercion, but it was kind of a more unjust version of it, where it was the poorest people, the people who are worst off, who had this very smelly compost facility in their backyard, and the very wealthy affluent environmentalists saying, oh, yes, we support this, but not in my backyard. <laughs> I think you can see any like diversity, any type of diversity in cases 
that look at this and, and are successful from different perspectives. So you can definitely see instances in which you have a very kind of like centralized government making decisions and restricting freedoms of people. And that has worked in some cases, but you also see other examples in which that really hasn't worked. And I really do believe in like the capacity of the communities to organize and self-govern um, mm -hmm. and make decisions and make wise decisions about their resources and make some sustainable practices. But if you do believe in self-governance, then you cannot also believe in like authoritarianism and you know, you cannot also believe in like a very centralized governmental system that makes decisions. So um, I don't really know. Seems like an it depends answer. <laughs> like every question. I think it depends. I think that's the answer. <laughs> it's like every question, political science. Oh, it depends. <laughs> Yeah, it really depends. And it also depends on the resource because, you know, you can also think, well, in this country, you have all the different, kind of like the federal system. You have states that make decisions. You have all these different agents that, that make local decisions. But if you have a resource, so for example, if, you're, if we're talking about a river that crosses different states, mm -hmm. the best choice is not going to be to allow the state government to make those decisions, you know? So you need to be able to coordinate and cooperate with uh, among different governments to do that. Same thing with issues of climate change. Like you need to be able to cooperate at, a, at the global scale. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to find like proper solutions. So yeah, it really depends not only on the resource that we're talking about and the problem that we're talking about, but also depends on the capacity of the people at the local level to make decisions for themselves. So if you are talking about a location that people are in conflict or people are not organized, they don't have kind of like the social capital to develop those dynamics then I don't think allowing them to make this, their own decisions is going to be the best choice. Probably have to give a little push to try to first create those dynamics and those connections before you start allowing them the freedom to do things. I asked you this a little bit, but I'm going to try and push you to give me a solution. I need a solution, Audrey. <laughs> so there, there doesn't seem to be a holy grail, perfect policy out there. But if we're dealing with reality... What do you think is actually, if you are, let's say, a lawmaker right now, what kind of policy would you draw up that you think is actually realistic? What institutions do you go to, go through? What are you trying to get done? And would you, and I guess maybe based off certain circumstances, what seems to be better in terms of allowing the local decentralized governments to take priority or actually going more of a top down centralized path? I mean, I guess it also depends what country are we talking about. <laughs> Let's do two. So uh, you want to do the United States and Colombia? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, okay. Um, for the United States. I don't know. I think, you know, that some of the institutions in, in this country are very strong. So a lot of cases of success when it comes to, for example, protected areas that are managed at the state level. So in that case, I would say, yeah, probably you, you want to have like more decentralization and you want to have governments making their own decisions just to better understand what resources they have and what is their need. And, you know, they're probably going to do better like that. Although I do think that freedoms should be restricted a little bit in this country. But, you know, that's very controversial. So, How, how about Colombia then? I mean, I think the case of Colombia is just so difficult because you have all these very complex conflict dynamics and they kind of like that balance between environmental policies and conflict is 
a really messy thing. There are some scholars that look at that, and I think that's yeah, a complete different dynamic. So leaving, so what has happened? You know, if we think about letting people make their own decisions and find their own solutions, what has happened is that, at least in this case, you have very specific groups that have organized and have tried to kind of like defend themselves from these other illegal groups and have tried to protect the resources. And, and then you have what is happening now in Colombia, which is kind of like um, what I see as a weak-ish state. And you have a lot of issues of kind of like social and environmental leaders being murdered every day. It's kind of like one of the countries in which we have that problem. And you have issues of communities being completely abandoned. In that case, I feel like, you know, decentralization and the government wash off their hands from the problems is maybe not the best solution. In the case of Colombia, I don't know if you know this, but half of the territory is under collective, mm-hmm. and, which means that the, there was like a very like long fight for communities' rights to get their collective title and be able to manage their own land. And they organized themselves and they had to go through this application process and fight for, for the right to own the land and make decisions over it. But what has happened after it is that kind of like the government, feeling that the government doesn't necessarily have to respond anymore for the provision of public services and public goods, because you have like the community as the owner of the land and they should be able to organize and provide all those things. And those those things are, that, that is not necessarily true. You know, the fact that people have been able to organize and control such a big piece of the land in the, in the country doesn't mean that the government doesn't still have responsibility. Yeah, I don't know, I feel like, it's difficult because of that. So oh. the, this might be a personal question then following up, but I'm sure you've read the research, you've read the, the data and information out there that the earth ha- is kind of in a lot of trouble right now. <laughs> like it, like climate change is pressing. You could see instances of literally where we are, the growing w- number of wildfires, the temperatures, where my partner is, the hurricanes are coming out. Like it's very urgent. I think I, you'd probably agree too. So how do you how do you see policy working if policy is always not going to be perfect? It always has to straddle these different interests, all these different individuals. When there's such a pressing and significant problem, hmm. I mean, I think at least from the from a global perspective, if we think about the our planet kind of like dying right now, I think you know global north needs to stop um giving their like putting the whole responsibility on the global south mm-hmm. um and you know for so many years the global north has had the chance to be super capitalistic and develop and enjoy cell phones and cars and infrastructure and industries and now there's this idea that well to be able to solve the planet to save the planet, we need the global south to not develop anymore. Like now that we're in this path of development, we need to stop that. Everybody needs to stay poor and stay (laughs) underdeveloped. Please protect your forest. Um, Don't cut the Amazon for the love of God. (laughs) Uh, Let's protect the diversity because that's the only solution for the planet. And I think that's not going to work. Like, unfortunately, I don't think you can tell so many people in the global south trying to reach this goal of development and enjoying wealth and so many like tools really and things uh, you cannot tell them well no sorry you don't have access to that i'm sorry we had access to this for so many years but now you have to stop 
So I think the, the main responsibility has to come from the global north and it has to come from a perspective of kind of like the not only decrease the economic growth, but also degrow, you know, like mm-hmm. go the other way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I honestly think that's the only solution if we really do want to save the planet. I think that's the only solution. The global north needs to stop with this idea of like growth and, you know, wealth completely stop the production, completely forget about, you know, oil and industries and energy uh, dynamics that are not sustainable and, and and stop blaming others and stop trying to, like, allow developing nations to develop. And, of course, that's, I think, almost impossible to do, you know? Like, it will be kind of like me telling you, well, Owen, even if you have the money, you cannot travel anymore. Stop going mm-hmm. on vacations. Stop buying cell phones, <laughs> stop buying clothes that are, you know, wealthy and, and are destroying the environment and are affecting socially also other developing countries. Everything you want to do, all this lifestyle that you're accustomed to, stop. You're not going to be able to do any of this. You know, if I tell you this, I feel like people are going to flip. And I mean, maybe I wouldn't flip. I'd fl- do flips for joy. I don't know, man. <laughs> Yeah, like, especially because I think, you know, developing, developed nations have this obsession with freedom. And, you know, they have the freedom to travel around the world. They have the freedom to tell other countries what to do and what policies to implement and what forests to protect. And I think, you know, that needs to stop if we really do want to save the planet. And if you, if you all cannot do that, then, you know, there's no planet to save. I'm sorry. I, I just don't think there is any. Like, I think you should just re- enjoy and relax the end of the world. <laughs> we're we're going to avoid that. Otherwise, there's no reason to keep producing podcast episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to circle back to one thing because I'm, I'm finding something interesting here with what you're talking about. Because when we were just discussing about uh, policies that you would kind of dream up that you think might work, you were talking about how there might actually be benefit to a decentralized bottom up approach in the United States. But what you're kind of describing to me now is that actually to get meaningful solutions done, it actually requires the centralized top-down kind of coercion that kind of limits people's ability to actually hurt the environment and and how actually policy is always going to be messy, never perfect, kind of like what you're saying. But there's more room for it to be messy and and non-perfect in developing circumstances, in developing countries, whereas in countries that are coming from the global north, maybe there's actually not only the aspiration, but the need to just say, no, we're going to do a pure environmental policy. Like <laughs> at this point, we've already screwed up for the last 10 centuries more than enough. <laughs> and there is no like, oh, halfway, we're going to still devastate the environment. It actually has to be 100% environmental commitment from global north countries whereas countries that are developing still have that leeway because there's a matter of justice at hand and involved does that sound right yeah yeah that's exactly it and i think it also depends on what what is the problem that we're talking about i think we can definitely think uh from like this bottom-up uh approach we can think that that works if we care about for example yeah, let's protect biodiversity and let's try to restore some forests. Let's use, for example, them, the tools that we have at hand that are kind of like uh, protected parks 
and let's use uh, payments for environmental services and all of that really works well at the local level especially i do think this country has many good examples of experiences where that that is working uh there are so many you know national and protected areas and state parks and all of that that work beautifully have the resources maybe not as much but you know like they are we are achieving the goals that we decided that were important so protecting the environment that as the main goal that's happening but if we're going to talk about climate change which is a global problem then i don't think that's going to help you know if industrial production energy solutions and things like that which require a complete shift in what we're doing you know transportation systems if what we really care about is to save the planet then we need to talk about real solutions because i think you know this more localized uh, easy to implement in a way <laughs> solutions are not really going to help solve the problem at least systemically but it can solve meaningful issues of maybe local biodiversity exactly. local um, endangered species but that doesn't get the larger issue at hand perhaps so exactly. there's there's context for both where they thrive I want to ask, because I know you teach an environmental uh, policy course, and so I'm curious, because I imagine a lot of students who enroll for that class walk in there saying, oh, I want to learn what policies are going to fix the world. (laughs) At least that's what I would do walking into there. (laughs) And I'm curious what you prioritize in that course. What do you try and have students take away the most from? Um, What do you think is most important for them to understand? And along with that, I'm curious of, what steps people listening, people taking your class can understand in trying to cultivate productive, beneficial environmental policies? Like what what does that look like? What can the individual person do? What can groups do? How do we actually get there? Hmm. I guess, you know, for me, it, it was actually really hard <laughs> to prioritize <laughs> when designing my class. <laughs> I feel like my poor students <laughs> had had so much to digest. Because it's, uh, yeah, I think it's a really, really hard thing to prioritize. I, I think you're always going to leave stuff out of the discussion. But the most important thing for me was just to try to, to have the students and to have people think about kind of like using a critical mind to try to understand that there's nothing that is the one single solution that is perfect. You know, I feel like people come to the class and that happened to me a lot. Some students came to class with these preconceived ideas of, you know what, like the perfect solution is red plus. So I actually, you know, I had a lot of students saying, yeah, they were super excited about talking to talking about red plus because they have heard about it uh, somewhere and they thought it was, you know, the holy grail. <laughs> like finally, we finally found the solution for the global issues we have, you know, the global north, the global south is perfect. We have the money, they have the forests. Let's just send them money and they have to make sure they keep the forest. And they were so excited about, well, this is the thing that we're going to talk about that is going to be perfect. And then when they start hearing all these issues and all this kind of like conflict and all the dilemmas that we're actually facing when we talk about environmental protection, then I feel like people get discouraged a lot, you know, like, and, and it's very easy to feel like there's nothing that is perfect. Every single policy that you try to implement has pros and cons. It's just a matter of of really making sure you have the capacity to assess those pros and cons and really have the capacity to decide as a policymaker or as a as a citizen who has the capacity to vote, for example, and choose the person who's going to represent you as you know one of the most important nations in the world. You have to have this critical mind 
to decide what is it that you are going to will that you're, that you're willing to accept as the cost cost of implementing some policy and why. So if you tell me, look, I understand people are going to suffer and people are going to die from this policy that I want to support, but that's what I care about and I am a hardcore environmentalist and you know I feel like we need to defend the environment and forget about humans. I if you tell me that, I'll tell you good. I just want you to know I just want you to make sure that you know what you're doing. You know, that's kind of like the most important thing. like I want you to make sure that you know what did you use to make that decision. And that I want you to make sure that you analyze the whole problem and you have to make your form your opinions based on something that was like good and well thought so that was the most important for me in my class just to talk about all the different policy tools and we looked at the pros and cons of each thing and how difficult is it to really implement it what has happened with the policy in the cases in which we have used it and how to go from there this just sounds depressing a little bit Audrey. <laughs> no offense but i'm like oh okay so yeah environmentally we're kind of screwed and any policy we pursue is probably going to have some trade yeah. <laughs> or some costs and there's no way around that yeah yeah like, how are you still <laughs> no go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no i was gonna say that you cannot you cannot be a hardcore environmentalist like well if you are a hardcore environmentalist you are not gonna care about people you cannot care at the same time like for like a perfect solution on social issues and at the same time a perfect solution on environmental issues if you want to care for both things, which is what I personally <laughs> care about, uh, you need to know that you're going to have to find a balance in which you are having negative consequences on both. You know, you need to be okay with some degree of deforestation if you care about people having a livelihood. How do you keep doing the work that you're doing? This sounds like every conclusion we're getting to seems a little bit sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> no, you know, I feel like, so like I've been to the field many times, I've worked with communities and people who live in the Amazon and just to hear them talk about their lives and their struggles. I do think I used to be um, like I used to be a tree hugger. I used to care about the environment so much. And I used to think that, you know, I, I feel like we need to protect the world more than we care for people because, you know, they, the world was here first. But the more I get to go to the field and the more I get to talk to people and understand their realities, the more I care about them and the more I care about social issues. So like, you know, the more I care about poverty and inequality, the harder it is to try to see solutions for environmental problems. You know? it's, it, I think it's a good process, though, just to like really care for people and see also their efforts and and when you go to see the reality of people who are really, really poor and are willing to sacrifice a little bit of their livelihood just to make sure the environment is protected, I think I think that is a beautiful thing to see. The problem is that when I come back to the developed world, that makes me a little cynical. And, you know, that's just what I have to accept about myself. Well, I'm assuming that some people who are listening to this are, are at least have the have the chutzpah. They have at least have something in them that says, I do care. I want to do something. And I'm curious if you could give some pragmatic steps to somebody who's just hearing what you're discussing. Like, are there specific NGOs that you think are worthy of support for people actually trying to contribute to, participate in? Are there certain actions, certain bills, certain policies, certain literal day-to-day -day things that people can do that you think are actually meaningful in 
in environmentalism and environmental policy as you see it? I think the only thing you can do from the perspective of, of kind of like an American citizen <laughs> the only, or a citizen in general, thing you can do is just to be informed and to just try to learn as much as you can about everything you do in, in your life. So like, you know, next time you all have elections, I think you really want to make sure you know what is the international policy with regards to environmental issues of the president of this country and the, also the presidents of the other developed nations. And you really want to make sure you try to understand what is the role that developed countries are having when it comes to environmental issues in, in the global south. And you want to make sure you look at, so look at the map of environmental leaders that are being murdered and you're going to notice that all of those dots are in the global south and just try to understand why and inform yourself and make decisions based on that. And I will say also as a consumer, you probably want to make sure you know what is the footprint that you're living in the world and you try to be a little careful with that. I think that's the only thing you can do in your daily <laughs> lives, you know, like just know that the products that you're buying are not products that are coming from, you know, exploitation and our products that are not coming from kind of like illegal deforestation and try to support the other products that are, that are the ones that are certified, but also know that even if they are certified, they may still have issues and that's not a perfect solution either. But, you know, you can try to be a good consumer and you can try to be an informed consumer. And I think also you want to try to have a critical mind and be willing to accept your own faults and try to forget about this kind of like savior mentality that I think some people have that you know that you know better and you can help the world because I think that's that's a really not realistic way to look at this um yeah just inform yourself and be a good informed consumer I think that's the only thing that people can really do so maybe at the very least it, this seems consistent what we talked about be willing to look at the inconvenient parts of your life the idea that be critical of what leisure you're enjoying at what cost it's coming to like i don't know just an example like the lithium battery inside a phone like how that's connecting to uh natural resource devastation that's just one issue i know i read an article um and just maybe be willing to just at least look at that in the face so that at least you maybe i don't like let's say live under a tree without a phone without a computer I couldn't type my dissertation without a computer, but I at least understand the costs. And I'm therefore I'm more conscious when I am purchasing these things, when I'm interacting these things, like being conscious, but not frozen. Yeah. <laughs> Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that's, that sounds really, really. And I, I think it's more important to be an informed voter, you know, at this point. Mm -hmm. um, because I think people don't really understand how like elections and who's the president in countries like the US, you know, that matters so much. For, you know, do you want the planet to stay here in a few years? Then you really want to be an informed voter. And, you know, you really want to be careful with those things. And you really want to be careful with what causes are you supporting. There is any way to, like, help any more than that. And, yeah, of course, you can, you know, support financially some NGOs. There are so many NGOs doing such a great work, um, really. Um, you can think of... A lot, a lot of NGOs trying to support specific programs to protect biodiversity. All of those efforts are good and all of those efforts are worthy of supporting. So if you have the money or you, if you can volunteer, that's all good. But you have to also be realistic and know that's not going to fix the problem.
So really, it sounds like, in, in at least in, in countries where democratic elections occur, you better damn well vote because that's your best chance at all these things. Like you should incorporate this into your daily life because that is really significant with how we act, who we are, the affect we give. Mm-hmm. But don't skip election day. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of that is really meaningful and significant. And I do think students these days, like young people are are really making an effort to try to be active and just to try to know what they're talking about and be involved. So I think that's good. That's hopeful, I think, for you know what's going to happen with the world. Um, and I think some people might be actually willing to make changes that are drastic and significant to make sure we survive. <laughs> so I think that's hopeful and good. There's been such like a back and forth, like, <laughs> oh man, that might be the highest note we end on. <laughs> Audrey, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you and hearing everything you had to say. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and stay updated on all of our social media accounts, all at PoliSci Podcast. We're always eager to hear about new solutions that you can participate in. And to do so, we've reached out to our past guests to hear what they have to say. We'll keep you updated. And in the meantime, please do subscribe. We'll be back like usual the last day of next month. So stay tuned for another episode of PoliSci. Till then. See you all next time.